The title of today's sermon is The Honored Son and is taken from Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Well, I'm going to redirect you now back a couple thousand years to the Lord teaching on the portico in the temple of Jerusalem. So if you would, let's have a change of mindset here and get into the scriptures and allow the Lord to teach us this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer as we ask the Spirit of God to guide us. Father, we thank you so much for the body of Christ here at Lacey Chapel. We pray for them, Lord. Help us to grow. Help us, Father, to love one another. Help us to put the other person first. Help us, Lord, to become your disciples that we might live out the abundant life that you have for us. Help us to rightly understand the truth by rightly dividing it. We would ask through your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As you know, Sue and I fulfilled one of those to-do things on the bucket list before we move. We have just returned recently from a seven-day Alaskan cruise, and it was awesome! As I mentioned last week, we were fortunate enough to join the Insight for Living conference taking place on board the ship. We were able to take part in a spiritual feast there, as well as the cruise ship's physical feast. One of the things I didn't care for was the necessity of wearing formal wear to attend the dining room. Most of us have seen those ship disaster films where the folks get all dressed up in their evening Wear and then sit at the captain's table when the disaster strikes. Now, it wasn't a big deal, for there were only two nights that you really had to dress up. They were called gala nights, and they were supposed to celebrate the grand tradition of elegant cruising. Guests were asked to wear their Sunday best, if you will, as they enjoyed a three-course gourmet dinner in the, in the formal dining area. Gentlemen were to wear collared shirts and slacks, while the ladies were asked to wear evening dresses or gowns. In cruising history, it was considered an honor to join the captain and sit at his table for the meal. That meant you not only got to enjoy his company, but the company of other important personages as well that were on board. That's not exactly how it was on our cruise, but it was, it was pretty elegant. It was nice. Now today, we are examining examining together another gala dinner, if you will. But this lavish event was not aboard a cruise ship. It was a dinner most of us have taken part in in the past, a wedding feast. More on that in a moment. But first, let me remind you of the context in which we find this passage. As you know, context is king. For the past year or so, we've been studying the book of Matthew, working our way through it. And last week I finished up with chapter 21, which I hope you recall. In that chapter, Jesus is in verbal combat with the religious leaders of Israel. They've been questioning him on the source of his authority, you'll recall, to do these things. By that they meant miracles and the teaching which he had been sharing at the temple site and around the nation. Hopefully you will recall that he never actually gave them a direct answer to that question. Jesus answered them with a figure of speech, which is called a chiasm, a chiastic structure which you see behind me, the A-B-B-A pattern, is what he used. That's an opening question that's given by the religious elites, and then it's um, sandwiched between, if you will, three parables, and then it closes with that same question. You can see this behind me on the the screen. The parables serve to be the indirect answer that Jesus gives to their question, but it veils the true meaning from them. So then, chapter 21 concludes with the religious leaders saying to one another, we must lay hands on this guy and kill him. If they're nothing else, the religious elites are pragmatists. They could see dealing with Jesus in the temple in front of an adoring crowd was not a winning tactic, but would lead to a disaster. So they would bide their time. 
Now, as we examine Jesus' answer to their question about the source of his authority, remember, their questions are always meant to entrap him. And all of this foreplay that has gone on has taken place before Jesus will eventually end up shortly at a Roman cross. That means time is short for Jesus to get his message out concerning the coming judgment upon Israel for their rejection of him and all the prophets that preceded him. Now, next, we examine the last question, which closes the chiastic structure of ABBA. The second question, more specifically, however, is not one question, but get this, three questions. All three questions come from different subgroups within the religious leaders. They're all about his source of authority, but stated in just a little bit different way. Each of these differing groups of the religious elites has their own unique perspectives and priorities. Sounds like Christianity today, doesn't it? We know them as the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, and there are other subgroups as well. The Herodians were the political animals of Judaism. They had chosen early on to support the tyrannical reign of the Herodian dynasty, the half-Jew. Why? Because he was the source of their empowerment. Then there were the Pharisees, the conservative wing of Judaism. They always opposed the political animals, the Herodians. The Pharisees got their power over the temple and the high priestly office from the Roman procurator. procurator. The Pharisees were opposed to the liberal Sadducees. Sadly, this is a group of men that would oppose anything, the Sadducees, that was of the divine. This group did not even believe in God, really, which is much of the state that Israel is in today. They rejected the resurrection. They rejected uh, any kind of afterlife. They rejected any kind of divine intervention in the lives of men. They, the Sadducees, were opposed both the Herodians and the Pharisees. So these three groups that made up the religious leaders in Israel virtually had nothing in common with one another except the commonality of the enemy, Jesus, the Nazarene. As the old saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Now, as a word of warning, Do not confuse this parable, which many people want to do, in Matthew with a similar parable in Luke 14. They are not synonymous. They are not one and the same. This parable found here is called usually the parable of the wedding feast. The parable in Luke is often entitled the parable of the great supper because they do not shame the same They do not share the same purpose nor details. They do have very many similarities, but they are quite distinct from one another, especially on the occasion of the event. So then, we should not view these two parables as synonymous, but distinct from one another. Jesus, like all other rabbinic teachers of the time, would recycle his illustrations, repackaging them, if you will, to fit a new context. The teachers would do this by changing the details and the occasions of their parables for the purpose of making a new and wholly distinct point. Every parable, you see, has one main point. The details of which so many people want to get lost in are not determinative of the purpose of the parable. So we should never allegorize the details of the parables to mean this or that. Otherwise, we do violence to the meaning that the parable was set forth to teach. Once again, this parable we look at today is one in a series of three. It is the last one. Jesus is using these three parables to answer the question of the source of his authority to the religious elites. He has shown himself to be, through these three parables, first, as the obedient son of God, secondly, as the rejected son of God, and now he shows himself to be the honored son of God. We examined the first two parables in chapter 21 last week. 
And now we bump into a very unfortunate chapter division. The break here between chapters 21 and 22 is unfortunate because it breaks the chain of the three parables in the last question. Jesus is in the midst of answering this question and giving his indictment of the religious leaders when this chapter break comes and really breaks up the chiastic structure that was designed by Matthew to argue his main point. So, this last parable gives Israel, and especially the religious elites, the reason for their rejection by God and why he now embraces the social outcasts of Israel as well as the hated Gentiles. In this text, we learn that they have been rejected for their unworthiness to enter the kingdom. Now, do not fret. This text does not teach salvation by works, for their worthiness or unworthiness is dependent upon their personal response to the message of Jesus and all the other prophets that came before him, proclaiming the kingdom of God. If we are to fully understand this series of three parables, then we must see the parallels that exist between the three of them and the differences as well. Now, during this last portion of Jesus' earthly ministry, he has already been rejected by the religious elites and the nation of Israel. The offer of the kingdom is past. The promised kingdom was offered, rejected, and despite its authentication by his person and works, they have now come to the place of pronouncement of judgment. The religious elites, that is, the three groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians, are all culpable for their influence over the people of Israel and the rejection of this offer. The consequence is the kingdom was no longer being proclaimed. But now Jesus was saying that the kingdom has been postponed. The current generation of Jews would not experience the blessing and the peace of his kingdom, but would suffer a severe judgment which will befall the nation in 70 AD. So the nagging questions behind all of this for the disciples were these. What would happen to this generation of Jews that was guilty of rejecting the Messiah? And if they are rejected, who then will be accepted into the kingdom? If it's postponed, when will that take place? Let's begin our study of the wedding feast in Matthew chapter 20, 22. You can find this text on page 983 of the Pew Bible. And we begin with verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables. The Lord here uses an illustration of a wedding, parabolically. That means parables are not allegories, fantasies, or cute little stories meant to entertain the folks, but they are meant to give one overriding point. The Lord uses parables to answer the question that they had about his source of authority. So let's not make the mistake of interpreting this parable as a standalone teaching of Jesus. It must be done in harmony with the chiastic structure that's designed by Matthew. The question, the three parables, which are part of his answer, and the final question that is given to him in three different forms. Jesus links these three parables together. I don't need to show you that. You can see that because he says he spoke to, Matthew says he spoke to them. What's the word? Again, in parables. And in verse 2, we have the setting and the main characters found in this third parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, this, of course, is an illustration, a figure of speech which is called a simile. A simile compares one thing with another of a different kind. Much like comparisons that are made Someone is as brave as a lion or as crazy as a fox. The comparison that's being made here is the kingdom of heaven is compared or likened to a wedding feast. Did you notice something unusual here? 
I have previously pointed out to you that the same phrase was being used in all three parables. Well, almost the same phrase, but not exactly. In the first two parables, in chapter 21 and verses 31 and 43, Jesus spoke of the kingdom there as well, but there he called it the kingdom of God. But now, in this third parable, he doesn't call it the kingdom of God, but now it's the kingdom of heaven. We need to ask the question, why? Why the change? As you know, previously I've taught that Matthew uses the two phrases synonymously, and I still believe that. It's still true. But Jesus is making a very subtle point here by using this change. He's pointing to the fact that no longer is the literal kingdom of God being offered. That's done with. It's been postponed. So now that kingdom of God is in heaven. So to illustrate the difference in locations, he changes the terminology. He's not speaking of, in this parable, the literal kingdom, for this generation of Jews has rejected it, but he's speaking of a kingdom that currently resides in heaven with all of those saints that have gone to be there. As you know, there will be a literal kingdom. That's what makes us a dispensational pre-millennial, pre-tribulation church. We believe in a literal kingdom of God. You know, most churches today, the liberals, the reformed, the Calvinists, they reject that. You understand that, don't you? They don't believe that Israel will one day be the place where the Lord Jesus, and I've left my text, where the Lord Jesus Christ will rule and reign from. They believe that Jesus is reigning in your hearts right now. Well, if that's true, he ain't doing such a hot job with some of you. And me. There is a coming day when he will be the king of the world and rule from Jerusalem. In this parable, the kingdom of the land has a son who is getting married and one, way, one day will be their king. This is not an uncommon illustration. It was often used by Jewish teachers in the day. The king always was representative of God the Father, and that's the way Jesus is using it. Yahweh, who resides in the third heaven. And the king's son, of course, in Jesus' parable, is representative of himself as the son of God. So the king, as the father of the bridegroom, is hosting a huge wedding feast for his subjects. In biblical times, both kings and wealthy Jews would invite an entire city or village to attend the wedding of his son. Jewish culture provided for such marriages, whether rich or poor, to be arranged marriages. The arrangements were made between the two fathers. Once the contract had been agreed to, the announcement or the betrothal was sent out to the invited guests to inform them of the upcoming date for the wedding. This betrothal, I'm sorry, the upcoming nuptials of the couple. This betrothal then was followed by a period of one year before the actual wedding took place. This gave the guests plenty of time to prepare for the celebration. Once the invitation was received and affirmed, it was a firm commitment on their part and a firm commitment on their part to expend funds to buy the right wedding clothes in order to attend. You see, the wedding festivities in Jewish life lasted for a whole week, and it required that formal wear be used. You can see that this would be a major commitment for such peasants as farmers or uh, small merchants who were living hand-to-mouth. Most Bible students see this reflected in the coming future marriage supper of the Lord as recorded in Revelation 19. However, we see it called the Messianic Banquet in the Old Testament uh, text as well. And we find that in numerous passages such as Isaiah and Ezekiel. More on that to come. So a wedding in biblical times had a very uh, specific number of steps that had to be taken. First, the match was arranged by the two fathers. The agreement was come to, and a dowry from the bride's family was exchanged, given to the grooms. 
We read of this in Malachi chapter 2. The Lord has been a witness between me and you and the wife of your youth. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. An agreement's made. There it is. A covenant is a contract that's concluded between two people. In this case, the two fathers and the two families. And then after a year passes, the groom, when all the preparations are made, walks from his father's house to the bride's house. Once there, he collects his bride, heads to the site of the wedding ceremony, usually the father's house. You might have seen this before. If you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, You've seen that exact same thing. The wedding takes place usually at night, and the procession has all sorts of lights in it, and that's followed by a great feast and celebration. As I mentioned last week, that was a rousing time for people to go to a wedding or to go on a cruise. The king in the parable then, as I said, represents God the Father, Jesus as the royal son. So the wedding festival is an allusion to both the messianic banquet and the marriage supper of the Lamb, which two are distinct from one another, but they are actually the same event. And it's spoken of back in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and other of the prophets. So the nation of Israel is well aware of this expectation. I don't know why I'm leaning into the microphone since it's not on. This wedding feast is symbolic of God's blessing on his people, on his subjects, and it shows his grace and mercy and loving kindness extended to his people, but it is intended for the purpose of honoring the Son. Honoring the Son. We see this in verse 3. He, that is the king or God, sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Clearly, we see the cultural practices of the day as reflected in not only this text, but in the many other New Testament texts as well, including the wedding at Cana. Those who had been invited, after the betrothal, they had received an invitation by the king's representatives to come to the wedding. This was the religious elites and the chosen people. Notice the king sends his slaves to bring the invitation to the guests. The slaves or servants are representatives of the Old Testament prophets who originally carried that invitation to his chosen people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and that would also include John the Baptist as the last prophet and maybe even Jesus. Matthew reveals to us here in this text that there's a series of invitations that go out uh, to invite the guests, the chosen people of Israel, to attend the messianic banquet or the coming marriage supper of the Lord. Notice the guests had already received the first invitation, which again occurred at the time of the betrothal. At that time, they would have either accepted or rejected the invitation. That was the normal practice of the day. After the first invitation, that was followed sometime later by a second invitation, as we see in the words, to call those who had been, get it, past tense, invited. The second invitation was a reminder. It likely gave the date of the wedding and the place for the banquet. This was the formal invite by the king or the wealthy Jew that he expected his friends or subjects, in this case, to attend the wedding of his son. But here we read those terrible words from the guests. They were unwilling to come. This pictures Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, the son who was to be honored as a future king. Now, the Greek is very informative here. If you don't have your Greek glasses, you might want to put them on. And you can see here that that word that they were unwilling to come is written as an imperfect Greek verb, which means they continue to refuse the invitation again and again. So the question is, why would the king's subjects refuse to come to the wedding of his son? Again, this symbolically represents the Jewish people's rejection of Christ as the promised Messiah, who came because his 
reign, his kingdom was very near. Now, all of the invited guests were those who would be privileged to be part of his kingdom. They would be at the inaugural messianic banquet. Many of the prophets of the old dispensation, all the way through John and Jesus, as I said, had proclaimed that the kingdom of God was coming or near. The initial act would be this banquet, but the people refused. Now, who calls the guests to the table two or three or four times? Most of the time, if mom calls you for dinner and you don't come, she gets upset, right? Right? Yeah, we don't like that when the meal is all, all ready and made and people don't come. Notice that the numerous messengers have been sent by God to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They were sent, mind you, to the same guests, the people of Israel. They were sent this message through the Old Testament prophets and through John. These slaves or messengers or prophets were sent during the, the Old Testament dispensation of the law. And Israel kept saying, in effect, over and over again by their response that they weren't coming. They did not produce fruit, as we saw last week, remember, in the parable of the vine growers. They received a preliminary invitation via the covenants. We know them as the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the New Covenants. In other words, they had no reason to refuse the invitation. They had plenty of time to prepare for this wedding since the invitation had been sent out for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, 2,000 years. Matthew states that those who were invited had received a first invite and then a second invitation as a reminder of the date the place, the time, the hour. They should have been ready to come, for the banquet was imminent. The hour was upon them. But they refused. And in verse 4 we read, the king again sent another slaves, another slaves saying, tell those who had been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted livestock, all the, are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Everything is ready. This is the third invitation that is sent by the king to his guests. What's he saying? The time is now. The food's on the table. Everything's ready. Get to the banquet. I hope you don't refuse to come when you're invited to the banquet downstairs. Is the food on the table yet, Sue? It is. You'll recall in the parable of the vineyard owner, he asked his two sons to go and work in the family vineyard. One said yes and then didn't go. And the other said uh, no and then did go. The son who refused did, did not do it two or three times, just once. These people have refused continual invitation to come, so they are far worse than the previous son's behavior. The Lord Jesus, speaking to Jewish listeners, would have been out, they would have been outraged upon hearing this. The king has sent his messengers again and again, and they keep refusing. Israel continued to refuse to accept the gracious offer of our Lord, and they will do so until the time of tribulation. This third and last invitation, however, you need to know. You can't see it so well in English, but in Greek it is written in the form of a command. There is no longer a request. Now it's an order by the king. And to disregard the order of a king to attend his banquet is not only dangerous, but it's rebellious. It's rebellion. The king was saying to his subjects, I've got everything ready. I've gone to a lot of trouble, great expense to prepare this banquet for you. Now get here and honor my son as it is your duty to do. Just like it's your duty to attend the gala party we're going to have downstairs for our three graduates. We want to honor our graduates 
And not to do so is to diss them in some ways. Here they are dissing the Son of God and not honoring him, as they said. So clearly there was responsibility and privilege on their part. They were responsible to fulfill the invitation that they had accepted. That was their privilege, however, to come and enjoy a great meal that had been made for them or prepared for them. Now, again, this, second, this third invitation that is sent is probably referring to Jesus and the 12 disciples and maybe even the apostles later on in the early kingdom of God. Notice the offer that has been made to them for this wonderful dinner is really unreal. It's awesome. For the king says, the food's ready, the oxen and fatted livestock are butchered. Are you hungry? You see, if the meal wasn't eaten pretty soon, it would spoil on the table. Now notice the answer to the guests. Notice their reaction to this third invitation in verse 5. But they paid no attention and they went their way. One to his own farm and another to his business. I thought some of these people might have been related to Peter Stroke. For they were scandalously rude and arrogant, weren't they? Maybe demonic. They simply ignored the king. We're not talking about Trump here. They had excuses for sure. Some claimed to be preoccupied with the things of this earth. The here and now. They had no concern for the coming kingdom of the Son or to honor him. Some of them thought they had more important things to do. They were preoccupied with their own affairs. One guest was concerned with his fields. Another was concerned with his business. And like Scrooge in Dickens' story, he didn't have time to come. Others are simply devoted to their own pursuits in life. Sound familiar? The everyday pursuits of things in this life can override our spiritual lives and direction because those are more important at this point in time in my life. Jesus had warned them about this. Jesus had warned them about this, saying, Do not store for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal, for where your treasure is, there is your heart also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be filled with darkness. That's important. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will devote to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or wealth or mammon. The king obviously is distressed. In fact, he's ticked off that his guests have snubbed his grace and desire to bless them with this wonderful feast. But that's not the end of the story. It even gets worse. Look with me at verse 6, if you will. The rest of the guests seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. Whoa. The invitees who refused, just like the tenants in the parable of the vineyard, acted out their loathing for the king. How? They abused and even killed the king's servants and messengers. The king was enraged, we read in verse 7, so he sent his armies to destroy the murderers and set their city on fire. Now, you'll recall in the previous parable, the landowner sent a final messenger to his workers in his vineyard, his son, and they killed him. Remember? The owner of the vineyard, however, did not mete out justice then. But here we see the king's reaction to their refusal in in the meeting out of justice. He sends forth his armies to deal righteously with these offenders by destroying them and their city. The king is justifiably righteously angry. And the rejection of his servants and his son, so he sends his many armies. That is, the 10th Roman legion is employed by Titus, the the future emperor of Rome in 70 AD, to destroy the temple and destroy the city of 
Jerusalem. These armies refer to the tools that God uses to accomplish his purposes. These Gentile armies were the instruments of his wrath on a rebellious people who refused his grace and mercy, but most importantly, his son. No longer will he exile them to some foreign land. They are destroyed by the Roman army. The offer had been made and refused. Jesus was ready to come and save Israel, but instead, the Roman invaders are allowed to destroy the murderers. That is, the religious elites. The plan for the millennial reign was now on hold. The invitations which had been extended to so many and fallen on deaf ears had been rejected. The Lord uses these armies as his tool to destroy and incinerate the city of Jerusalem. Kind of reminds me of events in the Old Testament. Doesn't it to you? When God executed his righteous judgment on the homosexuals in Sodom and Gomorrah. What did he do? He incinerated their cities. God always acts with his final purpose only after graciously waiting for an extended period of time. We read that in 2 Peter chapter 2, where it says, The false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. There it is. And they bring swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensualities because of the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them into the pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made an example to them of who would live ungodly lives thereafter, especially those who indulged in the flesh in the corruption of the flesh and despised authority. There it is, yes. God's judgment will always befall those who are arrogant, those who disobey, those who refuse his grace, love, and mercy. For that generation, the time of judgment was near instead of the thousand-year kingdom of Christ. That would be given to a future generation who would embrace the Son. But here and now, their destruction was swift and final. They will be replaced with a new guest list, however. A new guest list. New invitations are quickly made out and sent out to fill the empty seats at the wedding banquet. We read in verse 8 that there was a change in the method and a manner of the invites, I should say. Then the king said to his slaves, The wedding's ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you can find there, invite to the wedding feast. His command, he commands his slaves to go and compel others to come to the wedding feast. The food is ready. Bring the people in off the highways and byways. A sort of different guest list, however. Why? Well, those who were originally invited thought they were worthy, but the king says here they were not worthy to attend. New guests would be invited to the king's son's banquet, and they would honor him. And who are these new guests? It's the riffraff of Israel, the outcasts of society, the lowlifes that are found along the road. Anyone the slaves could find, they invite. The Greek phrase that's used here says the main streets or the street corners of the international Roman highway called the Appian Way. Anybody on those roads was compelled to come in. Just any old folks that could be found. And verse 10 tells us that the slaves went out into the streets and gathered all that they found, both evil and good. Both evil and good. Both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled to capacity with dinner guests. 
Now, we've got a record of these people given to us in the book of Acts. During the decade that followed Jesus' death, the gospel of grace was taken to the Jew first, and then the Gentiles. The apostles were sent by the Lord to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, followed by the uttermost parts of the earth. We learned that the wedding hall is filled with new guests here. Do you know the key to identifying who these new people are on the new guest list? The phrase, both good and bad. Instead of these religious people who thought they deserved to be in the kingdom and refused to come and refused to produce fruit as they were required to, they were called unworthy here by the king. The messengers were sent to the sinners, the morally bankrupt, as well as the upright. Both groups are now receivers of God's gracious invitation, and many in both groups respond. The question that many ask, however, is to whom does this refer? The Jewish context of the book of Matthew seems to make the answer to that clear. The original outreach would have been to the Jews in Israel. Those, however, the ones that had been ostracized. You know who they are. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the blind, the lame, the ceremonially unclean, and even the Gentiles eventually. Some expositors suggest that the terms evil and good indicates a willingness to accept the invitation despite their moral standing in life. This would fly in the face of the religious elites who thought personal righteousness was obtained by keeping their oral traditions. Now we move on to the second portion of this parable. This has been much debated within Christendom today. Please note that verse 11 begins with the strong contrastive but. There is one big but here like like I have. This shows a huge exception is found in the new group of invitees. We read, but when the king came to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there. A man was there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. This was a gala dinner, a gala event, a wedding feast. And yet he's not dressed in the proper attire. How did he get sit, seated, at the, seated, seated, seated at the captain's table when he doesn't have on formal wear? Some commentators suggest that the clothing or the wedding clothes were the imputed righteousness of Christ. Others have suggested that it is the personal righteousness of the saints which we know will be worn at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Since, however, Jews were still under the law of Moses and required to make a yearly atonement, it seems to argue for the latter. Like the it could be the special wedding garments were given at this time, as was customary in many places, to the guests by the groom's father. So the suggestion there is that the righteousness was given by the Lord to believers. The fact that the new guests were compelled by the messengers to come in off the streets directly, however, also speaks to this idea of imputed righteousness. Or... We could understand this as um, oftentimes the wedding clothes wasn't of a particular type of clothes given by the father at all, or the groom's father. Only that they be required to be white, clean clothes purchased by the invitee. Some have suggested that the clean white clothes would have been worn by the participants on many other occasions, so they had them available. Certainly, we know that wearing any old kind of dirty old clothes to such an event would have been a great insult to the king or the host. So if each guest, if they brought their own clothing, were responsible for it, then that would argue against this being imputed righteousness. It would speak to the works of the believer in his life. The man that's being excluded from the wedding feast by the king is, however, we know, being done so because he is not dressed in the proper wedding um, formal wear. This, however, cannot speak of entrance into the kingdom 
Why not? He's already there, right? He's already at the wedding feast, so it can't be entrance into the kingdom. Some of the clothes or, or robe that is representative must be of his imputed righteousness. That given by Christ to those who accepted the invitation to believe by faith. Isaiah 61 verse 10 sort of cements this idea for us when we read Isaiah writing to Jews. He says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. For he has, get this, clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with robe, a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adores herself with jewels. Wow, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Despite accepting the king's invitation to the feast, he attempts to attend the celebration on his own terms. And the king would not accept this. Notice the king's words to the man. They're very important. And the king said to him, Friend, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? So the question is of his dress, not of his ability or right to be there. The man was, according to the text, speechless. I submit to you there's going to be a lot of speechless people when they meet the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. How come you are here and you're not dressed in the righteousness of the saints? Your works are not enveloping you as a robe. And the people will be speechless. Wow. I believe this pictures the judgment of Christ when every man will be judged for deeds done good and Bad. Who attended the? Who attended the, the this this new uh, wedding feast? The good and the bad. The evil and the good. The man displays total disrespect for the king and his son. He's supposed to be there to honor his son by wearing the best for this occasion, but he comes in other clothing, and yet the king still addresses him as a friend, not an enemy. The normal word for friend in the New Testament. In the Greek would be philos, philos. However, the Greek word used here is hectare. It is a hypox legomeno. Should I say that again? It is a hypox legomeno. That's a fancy word for it means it's only used once in this writing of Matthew. It is used by Jesus to refer here to the one who is come but is unprepared and yet he calls him a friend. John uses this word in chapter 12, uh, chapter 15 of his book, his gospel, when Jesus says to the disciples, get this now, for I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, remember, the vine and the producing of fruit was the last parable's point, remember? He prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already chosen because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. And the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. My Father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit so that you prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I also love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Greater love has no one than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. Who did Jesus lay down his life for? Friends, believers. Next, Jesus says in this passage, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you slaves, servants, subjects. For the slave does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things I have heard from my father, I made known to you. Wow. It seems obvious to me that a friend is a believer in Jesus. The one who abides in him and bears much fruit is the one that will be honored and rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. However, the believer who does not abide in him and does not bear fruit suffers 
loss. The Jews were unworthy because they did not bear fruit. The same is true today. Jesus states that the unworthy branches will be tossed into the fire. It doesn't mean they're lost, does it? They're dealt with severely. Like the one who was not properly clothed at the wedding feast in righteous acts will suffer lost. We're no longer slaves, my dear ones. We are friends of the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends are no longer demanded by the king to do this or that. As friends of the king's son, we're given choices to make. We can choose to glorify him or not. The Lord, as you'll recall in the Old Testament, led the Jews around by their noses. You remember? They were his subjects. In fact, they are called in the Old Testament the children of Israel. And God gave them a pillar of fire at night and a cloud of smoke during the day to follow this, right? Not so today. The Lord Jesus calls us his friends. And he gives us principles to follow, to obey. And if we do, he will reward us greatly. This man was guilty of failing to honor the king's son, failing to produce fruit, failing to be in the proper attire at the wedding feast. As I've noted before, this could be, I suppose, the righteousness supplied for Jesus by imputed righteousness. It could be the righteous acts that the believer does in his life that clothe him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's not as clear as we would like, but clearly there's judgment for those who fail to produce meritorious acts as the Lord requires, the fruit he requires. And there is a time coming when men will be judged by that standard. The church is often called the bride of Christ. And according to Revelation chapter 19, verse 8, it was given to the bride her clothe. Uh, to, excuse me. It was given to the bride to clothe herself in fine living, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The church is the bride of Christ. And we're supposed to dress ourselves in righteous acts. The man was not properly dressed in righteous acts. We saw this in the previous parable as well. Where the new ten- tenants were warned to produce fruit as the old tenants had not and were found unworthy. This is being reinforced by Jesus in this parable and the landowners, the religious elites of Israel understand that as well because they themselves when asked about Jesus' parable last week said he, that is the landowner or God, will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Therefore I say to you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, that is the generation of Jews currently living, and given to a people producing the fruit of it. That is the next generation of Jews who will believe in the tribulation. The basic obligation of those who believe in the king is to honor him and to produce fruit. In this case, our case, it is meritorious acts that are honoring to our Lord and Savior. So we should not understand this man who was at the wedding feast and confronted by the king as being a lost man, for he was one of the guests. But we should, upon review, understand that he had been given a privilege of attending the wedding feast, but he had treated the king with dishonor and would now be punished. He's not going to be turned into a pillar of salt nor incinerated like they... The Lord did at Sodom and Gomorrah, but he will be punished for not preparing properly. Notice he simply loses, if you want to call that punishment, he loses the privilege of attending the feast. He's sent outside the palace to stand in the darkness of the evening. This metaphor should not be pressed any further. We read of the consequences of not living in harmony with God's will in verse 13. When the king said to the servants, 
about this man who had not honored his son nor produced fruit. Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Unfortunately, the English doesn't capture the Greek as well as it should, and it has made people think things that are not meant to be thought nor supported by a proper exegesis of this text. Many use this parable to underscore doctrines that are not taught elsewhere in Scripture. We should never use a parable to build a doctrine upon in the first place. It's only meant to accentuate how many points? One. Notice that these are different servants. They're not slaves any longer, as stated earlier. I suggest to you that these are angels who are doing the Lord's bidding in his uh, giving out or the loss of reward for those in the time to come. He has them bind the man hand and foot. That's illustrative of the fact that they will lose rewards. He's, they're taken out from the presence of the king. This is a vivid picture of man's inability to participate in the blessings of God's table, the Lord's table, without being prepared accordingly. The phrase, cast into the outer darkness, is an inappropriate translation, but it fulfills the Reformed Calvinist purpose in understanding this text. In Greek, it actually says, to sokos to everantan, which literally translated means the darkness outside, which totally fits the parable. It occurs three times uh, in Matthew, in chapters 8, 22, and 25. Nowhere else does the expression ever occur in the New Testament. All of these uses are about the coming kingdom age. The darkness is the blackness of the night surrounding a brightly lit banquet hall in the king's palace. That's what it describes, not hell, as some force it to mean. Binding him hand and foot is simply a a picture of his inability any longer to participate in the banquet and its blessings. Being cast into the outer darkness does not speak of judgment, but the loss of reward in the kingdom to come. That is the same for the Jews who believed under the Old Testament paradigm and Christians who believe underneath the gospel of grace. The weeping of gnashing of teeth is used again and again in Scripture. It always speaks of great grief, not judgment. When someone died in the Old and the New Testament, it was said that their families wept and gnashed teeth and so on and so forth. It's a picture of great grief and remorse. So here is this individual outside of the wedding hall, in the darkness, And he's overcome with remorse for his lack of doing the right thing. Preparing to come to the wedding feast. That's the point. Now, Matthew says in chapter 8 and verse 12, listen very carefully. The sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. The darkness outside, but the NASB says the outer darkness. And there will be reaping and gnashing of teeth. Let me ask you, who are the sons of the kingdom? Obviously, those are the ones who are saved. You can't be a son of the kingdom if you're not in it, can you? And again, in another parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus said, the good seeds, that's the wheat, are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. There it's defined for us. It's clear. The sons of the kingdom are believers. Therefore, those who have been Bound, put into the darkness to grieve are believers who are missing out on the joy, out on the joy of the king's banquet. Why? Because they failed to produce fruit in their earthly lives. This prefigures the coming judgment seat of Christ where everyone, including each one of us, will stand before the Lord to give an account for our lives. As Paul tells the Corinthians, for We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed, paid back, rewarded for his deeds done in the body according to that which he has done, whether good or bad. Not punishment, but loss of rewards. And Jesus closes out this mysterious, enigmatic teaching when he says this, for many are called, the word there, is really invited 
in context. For many invite, are invited, but few are chosen. Most people like to use this as justification because all they can ever see is lost and saved because they're blind to the fact that there's three tenses in salvation. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. But if you're stuck on everybody being lost and you're saved, you'll never see this because you're blinded to the truth. But Jesus is talking about those who've been invited to the wedding feast. They're saved. What have they been chosen for? To produce good fruits. This is not about predestination and justification. This is not about God knowing people in past, eternity past, and that they've been destined to be saved. It's just nonsense. Do you think those Jews listening to him would have understood it in those, that context? This is about producing good works because you're saved and the joy of the rewards that you will receive at the kingdom's inauguration. That's what it's about. Many are called to the blessings of ruling with Christ, but only a few are chosen to do so. You see, because most Christians don't live out the Christian life. Most Christians are not living the abundant life. Most Christians have no idea on how they're to live their lives because they really don't care. You see, they're concerned with this world of playing golf or going on cruises to Alaska. They're more concerned about what they're eating that would be luxurious and more than they could ever stand rather than helping out the poor. We have wrong, wrong priorities in our life. We do not have the Lord Jesus' priorities, do we? We have our own self-centered, selfish priorities in this life. Just come on, admit it. It's true, isn't it? What would your life be like if you actually lived it according to the principles of the Word of God? It'd be radically different and transformed, wouldn't it? But it wouldn't be the American dream. You see, there's the rub. You're in a culture that glorifies everything that's ostentatious and overdone. A gala dinner. A royal cruise. Where you're treated like the, like the king that you really are rather than the servant that you think the Bible projects this as being. You see the difference? So how do we apply this to our lives? We should think of the time that is to come in which God's not going to squash you like a bug for your wrongdoing, but he's going to either reward you with position in the kingdom or you will lose rewards. We should think of the time to come as a wonderful celebration where we honor the sun rather than sitting on a cloud with a violin playing and singing hymns and oh my goodness, it's so boring. Eternal life is not a great horror, but a great honor, a wonderful blessing. The manner and the extent to which we enjoy it will be will depend upon the manner and the extent to which we enjoy it will be dependent upon our faithfulness to the son of god here and now if you are not faithful here and now you will lose blessings in the time to come that's the bottom line you have a great opportunity to prepare prepare now Get ready. There's a party coming. There's a grand time coming. A gala festival in heaven. Now is the time that we've been called to serve and to work, to be his witnesses. However, if we're unfaithful, we're going to find ourselves sitting out of the festivities outside in the, the darkness is just representative of the loss of reward. John uses it over and over, as you ladies will find out in his epistles, of Christians, of believers who are in the darkness, in the darkness, not of eternal judgment, but of unhappiness. Do you like darkness? I don't. It's your choice. All those in the generation of Israel were in the darkness and missing out on the kingdom which was at hand. Dinner was on the table, ready, prepared for them. 
I was in Canada recently, and uh, it was different up there. God has another of another list of invitees. Does that include Canadians? Well, I don't know. But that's not the question we're asking here today, are we? The question is, what are we focused upon? Nationality, color, religion, business, farm, grandchildren, hobbies, climbing the corporate ladder. What are we focused upon? It's not on immigration, is it? It's not on NATO, is it? Our overriding focus and concern should be those that are articulated in the New Testament. If we become preoccupied with the affairs of this day, of this life, we will lose out. Our minds are to be captured by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they are, when we honor him as the Son here and now, he will honor us there as his faithful servants. Welcome into the place of honor and joy, my fellow servant. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to share your word. Help me, Lord, and those here with me to heed the truth of Scripture and to live faithfully and godly in this present world as we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ in power and glory. Help us to honor him when he comes and honor him now as we wait. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.